It's good to see everybody tonight. My name is Brian. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the Summit, and I am really, really excited and glad uh, that you're here tonight as we uh, launch this new space, and uh, we just pray that God expands our vision of uh, what we can do in the city and what he can do uh, through us. Um, like Andy said, next week we're going to start a series in Genesis called Stories of Grace, and we're really excited to do that, but kind of anticipating that we would have a bunch of people out of town uh, in January 1st is sort of a weird day to have church. Uh, what we thought we would do tonight, uh, instead of me maybe spending a half hour, which is sort of my anticipation, to like tell you about how cool this building is and thank those of you who have paint stains and splinters in your hands and like risk your life by getting to the top of a ladder and almost falling down to your death to help get this space ready, uh, I thought what I would do instead is revisit the mission and the vision of our church, what, what it is that we want to see God do through us. You see, my, for me, my natural instinct uh, when we launch a new building like this is to tell you about, you know, how much work went into building this stage or like how these lights that dangle above you are our little tribute to Larimer Square downtown. But instead, tonight, what I want to do is the exact opposite than spending the next 30 minutes telling you about a building. I actually want to spend the next 30 minutes telling you why a building is not essential for the summit's mission and vision to take place in the city of Denver. And so I felt like the most appropriate way to kick off our new building is to tell you that our new building isn't necessary for us to do what God has called us to do, okay? That sound good? That's not to not appreciate any of you who risk your life on a ladder. So here's the deal. If you've been with us for any period of time, you know that for us as a church, our heart, our vision is to see lives changed by Jesus. That's, that's success for us, is to see lives changed by Jesus. And so for us, we are not in the business of building bigger buildings. We are not in the business of having cool lights. We're not in the business of having a cool event space. We are primarily in the business of changed lives. That's why we exist. We exist to see people's lives changed by Jesus. Now, one of my favorite parts of what I get to do and part of my job is I get to hear tons of stories about lives being changed by Jesus. This past month, at the end of December, Andy and I got to meet with over a dozen people who are going to make the Summit Church home for them. We met with them, and they shared stories about how Jesus has been at work in their life, and God used Jesus to change their life. And in the process of hearing all those stories, you know what I never heard? You know what I never anticipate hearing? Now, I, I never heard anybody come and say, you know, like, I was super skeptical of the Bible and institutionalized religion, and then I walked in your front door and saw the shade of orange that you picked for the entrance, and like, I could tell you guys put a lot of thought into it, and all my questions faded away, I repented, I believed, and now I follow Jesus. Like, I don't anticipate hearing any, any stories like that. I don't anticipate anybody being like, you know, I, I was living this self-destructive lifestyle and I finally recognized I needed to turn away from my sin when I saw your sweet neon sign lit up on 33rd and Larimer. I don't anticipate any stories like that. You know, you know what I hear again and again and again? I, I hear really simple stories about how somebody's older brother went off to college and he became a follower of Jesus and it was just the natural overflow of his heart to want to tell his younger siblings about Jesus as well. And now the reason that that person follows Jesus is because of what God did in his work and his faithfulness to share what's going on in his life. What I anticipate hearing are more stories about how, like, when you went to college, you were really lonely, you didn't have anybody to hang out with, but some girl two doors down on your hall was really, really faithful to just reach out to you and to be intentional with you and share her life with you. And you learned pretty quickly that intentionality and that kindness was an overflow of Jesus' kindness towards her. What I anticipate 
are more stories of people saying, you know, like I was at my first job and everybody at five o'clock was so eager to get home and watch TV and play video games. But this one dude kept asking me if I wanted to share a meal, if I wanted to share a drink, if I wanted to hang out. And he just talked about what was going on in his life. And one of the things he couldn't help but talk about, one of the things he was so excited about was his church and what Jesus was doing in his church. See, when it comes down to it, that lives are changed by other people. People's lives are changed by other people. And I'm not saying that a building or cool lights or a sign aren't good resources to make that happen, but they're just, they're just tools to accomplish the mission. That's it. They're just tools to accomplish the mission. And I'm not saying they're not good tools. I'm not saying that the fact that we finally have kids space that's like within the view of the common eye, like, is, is not a helpful tool. I'm not saying that moms won't feel more safe bringing their kids and having them, like, they'll actually literally be able to hear that they're safe as they stomp around upstairs above them. I'm not saying that couldn't be a good helpful tool or a resource, but they're just tools for the mission. And what we have to remind ourselves, what, what I wanted to take tonight to do was to remind ourselves that for the Summit Church, we measure success not by our seating capacity, but by our sending capacity. Not by the amount of square footage that we own, but the amount of square footage that is filled by people with transformed and changed lives by Jesus. And so the most appropriate thing I think I could do to honor our new building being opened up is to say that the mission can go forward in spite of a new building. Now, the text that I want to look at in order to accomplish that and to revisit our vision and values is the text that's been the most formative on me and on us as a church in shaping who we will be. It's found in Acts 2, chapter 2, 42 through 47. And the reason that this passage has been so formative for us is because this is one of the clearest glimpses, one of the clearest pictures in the entirety of the Bible of what it looks like to be a community of people whose lives are changed by Jesus. What we're going to get a glimpse into is one of the first churches in the Bible planted by the Holy Spirit himself in a major urban center. And as the Holy Spirit plants this church, what we'll see is thousands of people who have just had their lives changed by Jesus within a matter of a few days. What we're going to see is how in the, in the process of way, the way these people do life together, in the way that this church is planted, they will structure themselves, they will give their lives to, they, they will commit themselves to three major values. They're the three major values of our church. They're the three major values of this church. They're the three major values I've structured my life around, and they're the three major values I would encourage you to shape your life around as well, okay? So the first one, the first one that we're gonna look at is a commitment to the gospel, okay? A commitment to the gospel, and we see this in verse 42 when it says this. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the very first thing we see is what? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is very, very important, and it's, it's first on purpose. It's first because it is that important. Now, the natural question is, if it's that important, if the first thing that they devote themselves to is the apostles' teaching, then what is the apostles' teaching? So you need to know kind of the larger story of what's just happened. And the biblical story uh, of what's happened, Jesus has lived, he has died, he has resurrected from the grave, and in about, there's about a 40-day period in between when he resurrects and when he ascends to be with God the Father. And in that 40-day period, about that six-week period, what Jesus does is he gathers his closest followers together, and he gives a final sort of training and preparation time for them to carry out his mission to the world in, in the wake of him leaving, in the wake of him leaving 
leaving. And what happens in this time, it's, it's a lot like, you know, in a war movie or something like that, where, you know, there's a climax that's leading up to a final battle, and the general finally gathers together all the troops for a final time, and he says, okay, some, you know, something really dramatic. He's in a room that has maps in the background and all this sort of stuff, and he says something along the lines of, like, okay, the training exercises are over. This is what your preparation, this is what all your training was for. Here's the game plan. Here's what I need you to do. That's exactly what Jesus does, but instead of opening up some map that shows them how to take a beachhead, instead what he does is he opens up the Bible and he teaches them for six weeks how to read it correctly. He opens the Bible for six weeks and he teaches them how to read it correctly and how in the end, this book is one large story that's all about him. It's all about Jesus and it's all about God's desire to seek and to save those who are lost through the work of Jesus on the cross. And in the absence, in the absence of Jesus, they are meant to carry out this mission. That's exactly what they do. They come from that meeting, that training session. They disperse. And these apostles who were there for that training go and they teach that to others. And so when the text says that this community, that these people who had just radically had their lives changed by Jesus are radically committed to the apostles' teaching, what we could say in the clearest of of senses is that they are radically devoted to knowing and understanding their Bibles. They are radically committed to knowing and understanding their Bibles, and not just that, but how the Bible is one big story that's all about Jesus. They are radically committed to knowing the gospel and how it applies to every area of their lives. Now, that truth, that truth that they were committed to that, should push in on us from two angles, really. It should push in on us from two angles, because some of you, and this is really the majority opinion in Denver, uh, believe that really really religious beliefs aren't that important. And maybe you have said this, maybe you know people have said this, if you get any sort of religious conversation with anybody in Denver, you're very likely to hear very quickly uh, something that seems very clever on the surface, like it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you respect other people's beliefs. Or, you know, it's okay to be religious, just don't be dogmatic about it. And what you need to understand is that what we see in this text is one, not only is it, it, not only is it intellectually inconsistent, to be dogmatic about having dogmatic beliefs about anything. But what this text shows is that when God broke into the world, when God did one of his greatest works in the history of the world, what it produced was not a community of people who were apathetic about what they believed or sort of willy-nilly and didn't really care. You believe what you believe and I believe what I believe and it doesn't really matter. But instead, it produces a community of men and women and even children who radically pursue understanding what they believe and why they believe it. Now, the opposite danger of this is, is this is where I fall, is, is that you have the thought process to say that all that really matters is what I believe. If I can sort of accumulate enough biblical knowledge, if I can accumulate enough facts about the Bible, then that will equate holiness. Many of you are in seminary. Many of you are, have been to seminary uh, like I have. Many of you enjoy reading theological books. And the great danger is that you see this push for biblical knowledge and you think the, the, the sole purpose, the, in order to be holy before God. I just need to accumulate as much knowledge as possible so I can win as many arguments as possible for his glory. So what the text is showing is that's not the fullness of what is being captured here whatsoever. That what we see here is not just uh, a responsibility to just understand a bunch of facts, but to put those facts into action. In fact, one of my favorite stories from 2011 came in my city group 
And it came when we were having a theological conversation. And my city group leader, Justin, asked some sort of theological co- question. And, and somebody in the process gave like a 10 to 15 minute response. He, he doesn't come to our church anymore. He gave like a 10 to 15 minute response. And I think, you know, he was waxing eloquent on all sorts of theological concepts and all this sort of stuff. And at the very end, this is, I love this. Justin, I, I guess the guy was expecting him, Justin, to be like, man, like that was so great. And I, like, I really appreciate you sharing that. And I learned so much in that answer. Justin pauses and looks at him straight and he says, man, that's great. But like, what does that look like in your life? Like, how, how are you actually taking that knowledge and how are you putting it into practice? And, and what I loved in that moment well, it was that it was a rebuke, not just of that guy, it was a rebuke of me and everybody else in that room. It was a rebuke of all of us who, who failed to acknowledge and understand there's a big difference between being able to articulate the doctrines of grace and being a person of grace who is eager to extend forgiveness to others. That, uh, there's a major gap between being the type of guy who can quote all the verses about marriage in the Bible and being the type of man who leads and loves his wife the way that Christ loves the church that there's a disparity between being the type of person who, who talks about, I have such a heart to see lost people saved. I have such a heart to see non-Christians become Christians and actually having friends who are non-Christians that you're engaging regularly and having meaningful gospel conversations with, and they would see you as a friend as well. See, it's a rebuke from this passage, and it was a rebuke from Justin to understand that for me, my, my propensity to think that if I can just accumulate enough knowledge that it will cover up the messiness of my life and people won't see my failure to live it out. And what the text says is you haven't understood and grasped the fullness of what it means to possess biblical knowledge. It pushes in us from two sides. It says, yeah, it really does matter what you believe, but it's not just enough to have beliefs, but your responsibility is to go and to put it into action. That you would know the gospel, that you would love the gospel, that you would possess the gospel, and you would put on display the gospel in the sphere of influence that God has entrusted you with in a daily basis. Now, before we continue the last two values, what I, I want to do is give some of you an action step uh, for those of you who want to grow in your knowledge and your love of the gospel. Uh, the best way to do this is to do it the same way that these guys in Acts 2 did it. It's to give yourself to the Bible, to knowing the Bible. Now, many of you probably are intimidated by the Bible. It's a big book. It's a difficult place where to start. If you start in the wrong place, it can be very, very discouraging. And what I want to let you know is that January 1st is a good time to really make a commitment to know the Bible well. And so if you go to our blog, summitdenver.org backslash blog, I wrote a blog post this morning about two plans that will allow you to read the entirety of the Bible in 2012. Uh, I'm going to do it. Um, my wife is going to do it. Megan's going to do it. I encourage you to join us in that as well. If you don't have a plan, if you don't have a regular time where you're growing in your knowledge of God's word. So I just want to give that as a really simple uh, action step. It's up on the blog now, and you can go and do that. The first commitment was a commitment to the gospel. The second commitment was this. It was a commitment to community. Uh, we're going to see this in verses 43 through 46. Now, before I read these verses, here's what I want to say in anticipation of this, is that I'm not trying to be mean here, uh, but pretty much all of you, unless you had a very unusual upbringing, are really bad at what's being, what we're about to talk at, okay? Like, you've been raised to be relationally dysfunctional, okay? So I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm just, like, your entire life, you've grown up in a culture and in a country that does community extremely poorly, 
And in fact, this week, I, I stumbled across this book uh, that was called Democracy in America. Uh, it was written in the early 19th century by this French aristocrat. I'm not going to try to pronounce his name because uh, I sound stupid. And the entire point of quoting a 19th century French book is to sound intelligent. And this guy, like, traveled all around the United States. He left France. He traveled to the United States. And he traveled all around. And he was just studying the culture. It was sort of like a modern-day Borat. Like, he came and just sort of made observations about American culture and, and what Americans prioritize and love and do. And here was his conclusions. He said that the prevalent theme, this is in 1831, the prevalent theme in American life is individualism. And in fact, he came away from that, from that time with Americans uh, so concerned about the future of the American, basically Americans' future and the future of democracy in the United States. He said, because everybody I talked to was shut up in the solitude of his own heart. And so, because this has been the American culture for generation after generation after generation after generation. Those of you who, like me, haven't lived more than 300 years have grown up in a culture like this, and you have absorbed a culture that encourages you to be very good at being an individual and encourages you to be very bad to, be, to live in community. And so when you turn on your TV and you see ads from Best Buy that tell you to get yours, when you see ads from Yahoo that literally say, it's all about you, that's their tagline, it's all about you, you don't even flinch. You're like, you're right, it is all about me. And you don't even, you don't even have a propensity to think like, doesn't that seem sort of intellectually inconsistent that it can be all about two million different people to whom they are advertising? You've been raised your entire life to come into the church as a taker rather than a giver, to come into the church as a critic who stands on the sidelines and like a connoisseur of fine wine talks about what you do and you don't like about the community rather than somebody who is a participant who engages the community, gets involved in the messiness of people's lives and gets engaged when things are difficult. You've been conditioned your entire life to believe that life is one big story and it's a story all about you and everybody else is lucky to be a supporting actor in your story. That's the way it's been. Now we're going to be presented an alternative reality in verses 43 through 46. I want you to to see the way these people did life together. It says, In awe, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Here's what I want to point out. There's a lot of things here, but, but here's the things that characterize this community. The first thing is that they were committed to being unified, okay? The, the text says in verse 44 that they had all things in common. Now, if you've had any sort of experience whatsoever with people, which I imagine all of you had, you understand it's not natural to have all things in common with other people, right? I mean, it's much more natural to say that person really annoyed me. They were really annoyed by each other. They really got frustrated with each other. They were friends at first, but then they started to learn like where one another was messy, and so they stopped hanging out, and they all joined different churches. That's, that's more of what we have experienced. And I think the temptation is, is from our own common experience to understand that, that, yeah, people are, you know, they seem like they have it together from a distance. You get up close, and they're very messy, and it's very easy not to really get close to anybody because of that. I think it's really easy to see this and see where it says, okay, they had 
all things in common. They, they had all things in common. And to think, like, the reason because of that was because none of those people were jacked up, messed up, you know, annoying, frustrating people who just, you know, naturally get on your nerves. And if you think that, like, you're mistaken. It, it wasn't naturally like that. There, there were people just like us. They, they, were, they were annoying, they were frustrating, they were inconsiderate of one another. But instead, what this text points to is the fact that they were willing to fight for unity. They were willing to fight for unity. The reason that they had unity wasn't just because it naturally sprang up because they're all a bunch of sweethearts who naturally got along with one another. It's because they were willing to fight for it. They were willing to fight for it. When times got hard and they recognized the messiness and they understood, and we're starting to have some friction in our relationship because that's what happens anytime you get close to anybody. Instead of fleeing, instead of going away, instead of disappearing, instead of going somewhere else where you think it's going to be different, got into one another's lives, had difficult face-to-face conversations, and they fought for unity in one another's lives. Face-to-face conversations instead of talking bad behind one another's backs. Face-to-face difficult conversations instead of bottling stuff up and taking it on your own and saying, I don't, I don't have to deal with this. I'll just, sort of, I'll just sort of wrestle with this on my own. They fought for unity. And because of that, they had all things in common. Not only that, but they were committed to taking care of one another. Look at verse 45. It says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. A lot of times, this is a really famous passage, so probably many of you heard this taught before. And a lot of times when I see this taught, you know, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need is presented as like they set up a homeless shelter or something like that. They, they, they helped the people they heard had need in the city. And I'm not saying... They didn't do that, but that's not what this text is teaching. What it's saying is they took care of one another. They, they were in one another's lives. They did community. They did life together to the point that they actually recognized where they were falling short, where there, where there were needs, both tangible and spiritual, they, where, where people needed help paying rent and buying groceries, and where people had real tangible needs where other people needed to jump in and help out. But what we see is a community that's more than a church, an event, an institution, but it's a family. And when people join that family, what they said is, you are now my responsibility, and I am now your responsibility. And what society tells us is your problem or my problem is now our problems, and we will take them on together. One of my favorite parts of 2011, this hasn't been a favorite part for many of you, it's been that many of you have struggled to find jobs. Many of you have struggled to find ways to make ends meet. I know it hasn't been enjoyable as you've been going through it, but I've enjoyed watching it. Not because I'm a jerk, but because, because it's put many of you in a place where for the first time in your entire life, you haven't been able to take care and provide for your every need. That you've had to depend on God to, to provide for you through the church family. And you haven't been able to pay rent. You haven't been able to buy groceries. You haven't been able to have a car. And people have stepped, at, stepped up and met that need for you. And you finally experience what it means to actually live in a church called a family. You've been able to experience that. And what I've loved on the other side is that many of you have been at a place, you, you make a great living, you have excess stuff, and that's great. Like, and you've been put in a place where you actually have real friends, not some anonymous homeless person on the street, but real friends who have real needs that you have the capacity to meet and you have. And you've experienced what it's like to give to the family. Not just that. They also were committed just doing life with one another. Look at verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Day by day, they were spending together, time together. Day by day, they were doing life together. There, there, was, there was a criteria for the 
opportunities that they would take. There, there, there was a lens through which they made decisions of the opportunities that they would take. And they would understand that one of the major responsibilities for their life was to do life with their church family. And so there were some opportunities that were good opportunities that they would turn down for the sake of being able to be known by the family and to know people in the family and to be able to do life with the family. They were radically committed. They were radically committed to community, to doing life together. And when we look at this, it almost seems like this, this just can't possibly be obtained in the United States. But the same God who, by the power of his spirit, made this happen 2,000 years ago can make it happen in the city of Denver as well. And I want to challenge you to that. I want to challenge you to that in 2012. I want to challenge you to really giving yourself to community. And if you're the type of person, if you're the type of person that doesn't handle conflict very well, let me tell you something. If you want to do this, there's going to be a lot of conflict. And you're really going to see the weak areas of people. And you can't get away with just a sort of like, I'm just not a conflict person. I, I just don't get, I just, I just don't do that. I, I just don't, re- like, that's not an opportunity, that's not an option if you're going to live this out. And so if you're not the person who does face-to-face difficult conversations very well, where you just sort of have to talk it out, like, ask my God's spirit that he would make that possible for you so you could have some real deep relationships. What I've found in my own life is I'm not really close to anybody that I haven't had a difficult conversation with. And I would challenge you to give yourself to that. If you're the type of person that, like, as soon as things get hard and you come in a community as a giver rather than, or you come in as a taker rather than a giver, and when people ask things of you, you sort of flee because you like to stay anonymous, I want to challenge you to become a giver this year. I want to challenge you to come in the community and not come as a connoisseur who sort of stands on the distance, on the outside, critiquing, like, what you do and don't like. Like, come and just jump into the mess of the community of the Summit Church. Commit join, we're jacked up, welcome, I'm glad you're here, you're jacked up as well, so you'll fit right in, and, and, and engage the messiness of what it's like to do life, and don't come just as a critic, but, but, but be involved, and give, and ask, what can I give? Too many people come to churches, and they ask, does it have this program, does it not have this program, what, how can this meet the needs of my family, come in and ask, what can I give to see the mission of God go forward in the life of this church? If you haven't been available over the past year, if you look at your schedule and you look at your time, it's just like really difficult for people to get to know you because you're just not available. Like you, your schedule's just jam-packed and, we, and people just can't know you and do life with you. I want to challenge you to, to have some criteria for the opportunities you will take and that you won't take. And you understand it takes time and it's hard to really get to know people and do life with other people. There, there's not a fast lane to making that happen. I want to challenge you to structure your life and think intentionally about your schedule in such a way that, that you know know that you know you can spend meaningful time and that you would initiate that you would initiate and you would help make that happen you wouldn't wait for somebody else to do it with you but you would initiate it making happening with other people community was devoted to the gospel they they were devoted to community and finally they were devoted to mission look at verse 47 they were praising god and having favor with all the people and the lord added to their number daily, day by day, those who are being saved. Simply put, this community did not exist for itself. It wasn't, it wasn't a church that said, you know, we're going to create this bomb shelter culture that's going to escape from the outside world, and, you know, we won't have to interact with anybody else, and it's going to be great. No, that, like, they had favor with all the people. They had favor with all the people, and day by day, God was saving people and adding 
to their number. They were a community that transformed and turned upside down the city in which they existed. Um, actually, one of my favorite quotes of anything that I've ever read is, I, uh, do we have this? Will it go up on the screen? Okay. Uh, is by a guy named Tim Keller who's been very formative uh, on our vision. And, and he says this. He says, commenting on this passage, he says, the church itself was a new generation, a whole new people, a counterculture. In it, their economic, racial, social, psychological relationships were all distinct and different from those in the surrounding culture. The church was not simply an aggregation of individuals who were saved, but it was a pilot plant of what humanity would look like under the lordship of Christ. They showed the world a whole new way of being human. And it was this, it was this putting on display the tangible goodness of God, of putting on display a whole new way of being human, of putting on display the kingdom of God to the city in which they existed, that the church exploded, that cities were turned upside down, and the world was never the same. Probably some of you have heard me tell this story before, but one of the most memorable moments for me in college came when I took an early European history class where we talked a lot about early Christianity. And sort of the gist of this was we would read, uh, you know, biographies or letters by early Christians. And then my professor, who was unbelievably intelligent, she got a PhD from Yale, would like make some sort of sarcastic joke or she would sort of explain away like how somebody couldn't seriously believe the things that they believed as we read these letters of early Christians. And so she would make a sarcastic remark, or she would say, you know, hey, this person, he failed at being a lawyer, and so he gave the priesthood a try, and that's why he's so radically devoted to Jesus. And day after day after day after day, these, these early Christians were explained away. And until towards the end of the semester, we read letters that went back and forth between ruling Roman pagan authorities at the time. And these ruling Roman pagan authorities were talking about the early Christian community, the Acts 2 community, and talking about how this community was literally turning their city upside down, not in a bad way, but in a good way. And how the plague swept through Europe. And as as the pagans fled to the countryside in in order not to get sick, the, the, the Christians, compelled by radical love, compelled by radical sacrifice, compelled by something they couldn't even quantify or articulate or wrap their minds around, stayed in the city and cared for the sick and dying like they were their own. And we read letter after letter after letter about that until finally towards the end of the class, a guy in the back who had never asked a question the entire semester, I didn't even know he was in the class, raises his hand and he says, why, like, why, would, why, did, they, why did they do this? Uh, why do they do this? And I knew I and he was anticipating like another joke or another sort of reason for like why this couldn't possibly be true. And my professor, PhD, Ivy League educated, looks at him and says, I have no idea. No jokes, no criticisms, nothing. I have no idea. See, it was in that moment what I recognized is, is that an individual can be labeled as, as a crazy person. An individual can be labeled as, as a fanatic. That's what had happened all semester. Individual after individual after individual. They're just, they're just fanatics. They're just crazy people. They're just, they're just ignorant, backwoods people who, who were more enlightened than those people now. But when a community, but when a community, when a community of people give themselves to being Jesus' ambassadors to a city, when, when, when a community of people radically put on display what the kingdom of God tangibly looks like. That demands an explanation. It demands an explanation. 
And I remember sitting there in that class and, and witnessing this moment unfold. God had just recently saved me, and I'm trying to wrap my mind about what it looks like to follow him. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking to myself, a community like that, not only 2,000 years ago, but today, still demands an explanation. And what would it look like? What, what would it look like to be part of a community look like that? What, what would it look like to be part of a community that where every single person who is committed to that community sees their responsibility as radically following Jesus and giving their lives away to seeing other people follow Jesus as well? Like what, what would happen? What would that look like? What, what would happen in a city where, where a community like that is started? What would happen in a city where, where Jesus is largely not fa- famous like what what would happen in that moment and, and i think as i reflect back on 2011 what's been so amazing is i've gotten a glimpse into what begins to happen along those lines when i think about what's happened in the life of our church and i could tell you story after story after story of, of not perfect people but imperfect people who god chooses to use anyways living this out living this out living on mission living as a good missionary to the city but I would say that's the best way for me to explain how like, our church has grown from being some sort of cult-like six-person gathering in my living room studying the Bible to being now in a room of this size. And when I think about it, what, what's happened in that process is it hasn't been, man, like it's a great building or there's, we didn't have a building. Like, it was all their programs, like we don't have any programs. It was their sign, like we had a, $15 decal that we put up on a window that like probably most of you didn't even know existed. Like what was it? It was like Jesus choosing to move mightily in a community of men and women who, who will just lay it all on the line and say like not to you but not to us but to you like be the glory like put yourself on display in this city. As I've articulated to people this year like what I've said is the closest thing I compare it to is it's like when you're driving down the interstate and you like see a barbecue place over on the right, and it's like really run down, and it has like no sign, and it has no air conditioning, and it has no room for anybody to sit in, but there's still like people, there's like a lot of people who still go there, and what do you know in that moment? Like the food has to be good, right? Like there's no other explanation for it. When, when I think about what's happened in the life of our church over the past year, and what, what I pray that God would continue to do is that, is that people wouldn't be drawn here because, like, man, the music was fantastic, the preaching was fantastic, the programs were fantastic, the facilities were fantastic, the artistic ac- use of lights were fantastic because Jesus is famous in that community. And when that happens, when that happens, he has an irresistible draw. Jesus said, when he, I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And what I pray that people look at our church and what God does is he continues to, to, continues to do his movement through the life of our community. The people wouldn't say it was any of us, but they would look at Jesus and they would say, that's the type of place that the food is good. That's the type of place the food is good. That's the type of place that Jesus is made famous. He's taught, he, he's lifted up, and he has an irresistible draw. That's the vision. That, uh, that's the vision for us as a church. As we look forward to the future, as we celebrate the opening of a new building, as we celebrate the fact that we actually have kids space that's right there, as we celebrate everything that we've done. We don't, we don't celebrate paint colors. We don't celebrate lights. We don't celebrate a sign. Even though by God's grace, we pray that those are good tools that continue the mission and expand and get more people in this room for the sake of hearing the gospel. More than anything else, we radically continue to give ourselves away to being a gospel community on mission for Jesus to the city of Denver and the world. And that's our hope.
and we can do that if God decides to give us a building 10 times the size of this one. That's, that's our hope if tomorrow a law comes out that says it's illegal to preach the name of Jesus and we have to scatter into homes. We continue to be a gospel community on mission for Jesus to the city of Denver and the world. That's our hope. That's what we, we commit ourselves to and that can happen despite the facilities, despite the programs, despite the musical performance, despite anything because it's all about him. So as I get ready to pray, what I want to challenge you to this year is, is, is structure your life around those rhythms of gospel, community, and mission. And don't leave feeling guilty and, and ready to psych yourself up in order to be a better community person or be a better gospel person or memorize your Bible or something like that. But instead, lean on grace and believe that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is at work in your life as well. And he can propel your heart to be the type of man or woman who knows your Bible, not because you have to know your Bible, but because you get to know your Bible, because you are in love with the man who lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, and conquered the grave for you. And you understand it's a privilege to get to know the book that's entirely about him, that, that you would be able to give your life to community, not because you have to or because a Christian is supposed to be in church, but because you yearn to be part of the family of God. That you yearn to be part of the family of God. That you would give yourself away to mission, not so that you could brag about all the lost people that you're sharing your faith with and, and you could sort of have some sort of token prayer with the Christians that you hang out with, but because your heart is broken of what the consequence is for the man or the woman who dies apart from Christ. And as you taste the tangible goodness of God and the Christ-centered life now, you, you, would, you would yearn for the people around you, your friends and your family and your coworkers, to know that, to taste that, to see that, to experience that. For us as a church, for you as individuals, to give ourselves to the gospel, to community, and to mission. That that would be our hope when we're six people. That would be our hope when we're 60 people. That would be our hope by God's grace if he grows us to 600 or 6,000 people. That's my prayer this year for you. It's my prayer for our church, and uh, that's our only hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your, your goodness and your kindness towards us. We thank you so much uh, that you have shown us your gospel, and that gospel has started a community called the Summit Church, uh, and that Summit Church has lived on mission, uh, often imperfectly, but I think the best that we have, the best that we could. God, please just expand our vision of what you can do. Uh, put our Help us not have our hope in a building, but in you. And God, just blow our minds. Do something bigger that we could, just do something bigger than we could, could explain away. Something bigger than our own talents or our own gifts. Jesus, make yourself famous by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would receive all the glory uh, for what's happened over the past year, what we pray will happen in the, in the years to come. And we ask all these things in your powerful name. Amen.